Hey now, other people call me Paul. Hey Becky. Hi. Do you know hi. Do you know what I like the most about podcasting? Is that a verb? Can you use that as a verb? Um is it that you don't have to edit the video? Um it's a weird answer. I, I it's close, I guess. Uh, I think it's the part where I can cut out. I get to cut out all the awkward parts of our recordings, <laughs> where yeah, I forget. I forget how to speak English, or I start crying, or you start with your cussing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, the kids come in demanding lunch. Yeah, it's just magic. It's like it never happened. Mm-hmm. People probably would be surprised to know that every thirty or forty minute episode takes somewhere between eight and 12 hours of recording time that we edit down. <laughs> Don't say that. It's not that bad. <laughs> what do you like about it besides the cussing? About podcasting? Yeah. Um, I guess the thought that someone might listen to it. <laughs> sort of conditional uh, thing you like about it. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be surprised if our visitor today does anything other than delight us some people are some people are just kind of social chameleons you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and i'll go out out on a limb here and suggest that that quality is maybe underrepresented in academia so we're definitely lucky to have her here today Mm -hmm. here we go enjoy friends hi My name's Diane Ebert-May, and I feel awesome about three-dimensional learning. Welcome, Diane. Were you swimming with the sharks this morning already? Absolutely, except there's chlorine in the ocean I'm swimming in. (laughs) Because because, um, the temp's a little too cold for these Mm. frigid fingers and toes. Uh, in the ocean. But they're there. They're waiting for us to come back. Spring, the the cherry blossoms are blooming already. So spring is is here and the water will be warming up. Hmm. Hmm. I thought you might show up with a waterproof headset and you and you narrate your daily five mile ocean swim while you're talking to us. Uh, listen, <laughs> I have some crazy friends who would do that, but it, <laughs> uh, it disrupts the uh, my encounters with the sharks. So I'll tell our listeners, that Diane has it figured out. She is a Michigan State University distinguished professor who has managed to relocate her office to San Diego. (laughs) Did you tell anybody before you did that? Or was it like the the Baltimore Ravens secret move to Indianapolis under the cover of night and and you were just like, hey, I'm in San Diego now? Yeah, no, it was... um... It started with a sabbatical here uh, in 2015, and then I realized, oh, one could live where the sun shines every day. And as a plant ecologist, it's really important that I have sun every day, otherwise I can't photosynthesize. And so um, (laughs) I worked out a deal, and uh, that's what you can do when you're a university (laughs) distinguished professor, work out deals. Um, I do miss going back during COVID. I usually would go back five or six times a year. Uh, for mm-hmm. a period of time back to Michigan. And I do miss seeing all my buddies in my department and all my students, but so does everybody else in the world. So um, that's just the way it is. But yeah, mm-hmm. San Diego is a wonderful place to live. My 
Baltimore Ravens reference reminds me of some internet creeping I did to learn more about you. And I have a question about a shirt you were wearing in a picture on the internet somewhere. I'm pretty sure it was a Morgan State shirt. Morgan State, yeah. Yeah. I had nothing to do with Morgan State except that my daughter is a psychologist and she did a residency at Morgan State and it's a wonderful HBCU. And I have colleagues there and she gave me that t-shirt and I wear it. We used to live just half a mile from it. We could hear the marching band practices from our house. It's a great, it's a great school. It serves a very important population of students. I am always thirsty to know more about the work our group does or did in the past, even outside of the, this ed research that we talk to each other about all the time. But according to the internet, you still do some plant biology research in Colorado. Is that true? I do. I do. And so, and it, it directly connects to my research with postdocs uh, on teaching and learning, but um, I'm a community, plant community ecologist, and this summer will be year 50 of data collection on, on Nywalk Ridge. And so, um, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's not going to get us to Mars or the moon. It's not rocket science, but it's one of the longest data sets in the world uh, on alpine plants. And so the programs I've been involved with are looking at change on earth over time. And I'm in particularly looking at change in alpine plants over time. So the longitudinal thing has been built into my fabric and I have um, permanently marked plots on Niwot Ridge. I know every single plant that is there. And every, <laughs> every year that I say, well, maybe I should stop that. My colleagues would say, so then go up there and pull up all the stakes and that would be like pulling up gold. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, we're going to keep doing this. And I've even expanded. So one of my graduate students, our former graduate students at, in my department at Michigan State, um, Clara Sharnagel is a lichenologist. So she knows lichens. And so we even have a 50-year record of the lichens up there. And lichens are really interesting organisms that that you know people study them on tombstones to date cemeteries mm-hmm. because you can date things with lichens. And they're really interesting indicators of climate change. So I'm really one of the people contributing data towards long-term change in plants over time. And yeah. I don't know if we're going to make it this summer due to all the restrictions of COVID, but we'll certainly get up, if not this summer, next summer for year 51. I can imagine that after having taken data there for 25 years, that makes the decision easier to continue going because oh, yeah. then it's very apparent that it's a longitudinal, longitudinal study. Yes. But what about years one and two and three and four and five like what about how how did you like how did you choose to keep going with that even when you were even when it was a new project to you yeah well I didn't and actually that's true when you're a graduate student you want to get out of there you want to finish your dissertation and get your PhD and carry on and so I moved from the University of Colorado to the University of Maine and we had no money uh, and I couldn't go back to the tundra every year uh, mm. until I was able to figure out how to get the resources to do this research. And they weren't paying me in Maine to do alpine tundra research. Yeah. Um, so I had to work. I had to work out the funding issues um, with all the the long term projects. So we started off. It used to be called the International Biological Program, and now in 1980 it became an official long term ecological research site. Uh, for North America. And um, uh, so I've been able to, to get funding to go up there. It's just field support. You know, it's because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's at, you know, almost 12,000 feet. So I need uh, field station support. And, uh, 
you walk up to the top. So it's mm-hmm. uh, as long as I can do that. So no, as an early graduate student, but that's why I would I would encourage graduate students. Yeah, you've got to have short term plans, but look out beyond. You know, look. Mm-hmm. Look beyond your first job and tenure. If you indeed you're doing something that merits longitudinal uh, examination over time, it's we need these studies, and more and more and more scientists are beginning to look at the longitudinal nature of the work we do. Hmm. I, I did see the 1971 number out there, but I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna say it myself. Well, I That's started amazing. on the Alpine. I was I was one of those precocial ten year olds. So I I was doing <laughs> I was I was doing that in middle school. I had a very fine teacher who said, Yo, you should really do some research. So I, I started very young. Um, and so nineteen seventy one was a good year. <laughs> so uh, for me personally it's unlikely that I'd be sitting here without Diane's influence. Well you know, given the state of things, I might be sitting physically here, but <laughs> you know what I mean? But I, I emailed Diane when I saw this job posting because she was labeled as the biology representative and hmm. biology is as close as I get to being some kind of what we call deeper. I think of myself more as just a burr, basic education researcher. <laughs> <laughs> she was just so generous with her time. Um, we were Zooming before it was cool and she gave me some really um, substantial feedback and how I can improve my chances to, to join the team. And for me, that was it. I was sold on the te- on the group and the work. And so all I'd say, thank you. And your influence reverberates all over the place. I know, um, I know that's the case. Um, but those are the only nice things that we're allowed to say in this episode. The rest <laughs> of the time, we're going to take you downtown to the station, talk in the interview room with that bright light. Is that okay? That's good. And, and thank you. It's my it's my pleasure. Uh, you you okay. guys are my energy. I, I want to definitely get to some of the cool stuff that you do to provide a sense of relatedness and community for people who want to try what you've suggested we might call multidimensional learning. And we'll get back to that too. But first, I, there's something I realized we haven't really talked about with anybody yet on this podcast. And that's uh, kind of the order of operations when you work with someone or some group on transforming teaching. So you're a big proponent of starting with a focus on assessments, but I need to stand up in front of hundreds of eyes and put on a show before anyone takes a test. So why do we, why start with assessments? Well, because that's the only thing we haven't been able to change. I can stand Mm -hmm. there as a card carrying with my green card, no pun, that was a pun intended, my (laughs) green card and say, I'm one of you folks. Uh, and we got to do something and this is where we're going to start. And I, I give them no choice. <laughs> so it's, so if, if we don't change our data about student learning, it's the same way of thinking of your science. And there's a connection here, Paul. So I can stand among my colleagues, whether they're seasonal or, or early career as one of them saying, all right, we've got to teach scientifically. We call it scientific teaching, using tested pedagogies. Okay, let's do everything we can do and link it to your science. And the minute I do that, it's simple to start with assessment. Because in fact, I said, what's the most important thing of your scientific research? Our data, the question clearly, and the data to support or not. Anybody disagree? No. How do you get your next grant? Okay, so here we are. We're not going to have. We're not going to live in a split world. So I refuse to say here's research and here's teaching down below, and it's secondary. I don't accept that. And so their option is to walk out of the room. 
uh, if they're not going to play with this, but they don't, uh, except one person. I have a very funny story about, uh, I did my bachelor's. Oh, Oh, this is a good one. I uh, did my bachelor's degree in botany at the University of Wisconsin, which I'm very proud of and a very hardcore alum. And Hugh Wiltus was the very famous uh, guy in charge of the herbarium. And so finally, in about 1995, I was invited back. I was in Arizona at the time, and I was invited back uh, to uh, the botany department to give a seminar. And that's it's pretty cool when you finally get invited to your home institution to give yeah, a seminar. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, so I, th- there I was. Could you take them outside, please? I'm doing a podcast. Okay. Um, <laughs> I get it. I, I feel for young parents. Uh, so... Um, I was doing this and I don't give lectures for seminars. I give interactive kinds of things. I take folders and markers and do all of those sorts of things. And um, I did that and I said, okay, so this is not going to be a lecture. It's going to be interactive. And Hugh Wiltis, who was sitting in the first row, got up and stood up and walked clear out of the room. And everybody, of course, knows this guy. He was quite an interesting man. Uh, and he wasn't going to stand for it, but that's the only one I can really count. Mm. Um, and so we basically, I, I, I respect them for who they are because I'm one of them. And I say that in my research, no matter what I'm studying, it's my question and those data that make a difference. This is how I think about teaching. It's what do you want them? It's the objectives for learning for your students and the data you're going to get that whatever you did mattered. Mm-hmm story done. So let's go on. How are we going to do this? Because we don't know how to do this. The problem is we don't know how to do this. No one ever taught me how to write a multiple choice question. No, there's not a scientist around who, who took a psychometrics course or learned how to do this unless they worked for SAT or GRE. And, and not many of us have done that. So, so that's how I enter this whole thing. If this is what you want in science. We're not going to. And, and if you think teaching is secondary, see ya. Yeah. I can say mm-hmm. that. If, if I mean, mm-hmm. I, I can say that. My hair has been white since I was 40 years old. I mean, I can stand up there and say that. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, but I believe it deeply. Um, and so do my colleagues. So anyhow, that's the long and short story of how I can stand up there and say, we're going to focus on assessment. We're going to focus on the data you get. Because we can look at all the course evaluations you get and all these wonderful comments you get to students. And I think that's all fine and good. It's not going to tell us anything about their learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not, not the kind of data that we want. Mm-hmm. So you're touching on this, but for many years, there wasn't a whole lot of support for college instructors who were kind of stuck up in front of a big lecture hall based on a track record of good lab or bench research. So what I want to ask you is what what were some of the signposts along the way that said that might not be the best idea to just kind of assume that good researcher meant good teacher? Well, that goes back all the way to my life uh, at the University of Delaware. So I left the University of Maine and I went to the University of Delaware and I became an administrator, became an assistant provost. And it was, you know, it's the story about my two kids who are five years apart and they were seven and two. And I, I, I was observing them saying, holy cow, they're really good. I mean, we were outside all the time, even when in Maine it was, or this is a Delaware, I have to remember where I was, in Delaware. <laughs> and I was trying to figure out, I went to the dean of the College of Education, who was a very famous psychologist, and I said to him, I said, Frank, how is it that my children 
are so good with asking questions, making observations, doing this stuff, and my undergraduates aren't. I said, does anybody study how people learn science? And he just rolled his eyes and said, you really don't know anything, do you? And I said, not about psychology. So I was able, because since I was an administrator, you can, you can do anything you want to in the day's 24 hours long. So I taught in a K-3 curriculum development lab with teachers. So I taught kindergarten kids, first grade kids, second grade kids, third grade kids. And that's where I began to learn the theories. Constructivism, I learned about Piaget, I learned about Vygotsky, I learned about all of these things while teaching little people about shadows. So the unit was on shadows. And I learned about misconceptions. It was just the most phenomenal experience of my life. And I said, I got it. So this is the basis for how you go about doing the research. And then so then I, you know, an opportunity came up to go to Northern Arizona University and to become the director of their science and math learning center. And I said, this is, this is what I have to do. So for 10 years, I worked with K-12 teachers. I, and, and mainly the teachers were from the Navajo and Hopi reservation. So I was dealing with underrepresented populations of teachers and kids, and it was the best. So I did that for 10 years and really built my foundation in the theories and practices of constructivist learner-centered teaching. I got it. And, and, and then the story goes. And then from there, uh, you know, uh, I got to the opportunity to go to Michigan State University where I tell my students I left Arizona where the sun shines 300 days a year and moved to, Michi- <laughs> and moved to Michigan where it shines the other 65. But I said, I'm here because I wanted to test my models in a big research unruly land-grant university where the majority of students in the country have access to in their own states. And so if my models worked and my thinking worked in a big, large things. Because at Arizona, Northern Arizona, I was there. I taught 800 students, so I took, taught two sections of 400 hmm. uh, together. And this is where it really, uh, the, the learner-centered teaching and uh, the assessments that were beginning to align with that, this is where this budded. And, and, and things would blow up as we were doing an activity. And I'll never forget, we didn't have cell phones like today. This is in the 80s. So I would go out into the lobby, dial, dial Carol at the University of Montana saying, I said, I'm in class right now, and this activity is not working. <laughs> I said, what am I doing wrong? I said to the students, hold on, I'll be right back. And I dialed her up, and I got her, and I said, what are we doing? I said, okay, back I go, and then we did it. We did both sections for a number of years because I wouldn't let anybody else teach it till they learned how to teach it. So that's when I began teaching faculty how to teach and assess students this way. So that was, that was a long time ago, and it just didn't stop. I want, you, I want to think about all these people that you've helped um, think about their teaching along the way. Um, it's going to require some generalizations probably, but I still want to ask some, some of these questions. So what do you need to know about someone to be able to help them start transforming their classroom practice? They just have to show up. All I expect of them is, if they don't want to deal with it, they don't show up, Paul. Yeah. They just all all you need to do is show up. I mean, so that means you've got some inkling that mm-hmm. I want to at least learn about it. Whether or not I'm going to change, I'm going to withhold my judgment. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's you know, I understand that. I I see where people are coming from, but um, yeah, that's all you need. Um, how much 
of a person's say likelihood to engage and change depends on their own personal um, things they bring, their values and beliefs compared to what to call them external or situational factors? Yeah, it's both. What department you're in influences things. Are It's so hard to get those data. We tried. Um, I, I think if I were to look at one personal variable, it's self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is a big variable for all people, regardless of what you're going to do. And in the classroom, your, your self-efficacy is going to uh, influence uh, the risks that you're willing to take and so forth and so on. And so I, I think the, the, the self-efficacy of that, your confidence, and then this ability to transfer your confidence to truly look at the learner before the teacher. You know, and as I review people's teaching statements, I said, oh, you know, they know that if they're not talking about the learner, I'm going to just give them all sorts of feedback saying, this is all about you. What about them? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's crucial. It's, it's the, your confidence in dealing with this. I mean, some of the oldest things that we know just by experience that, you know, faculty are these, these, ex, these discipline experts who are just really nervous about not knowing the answer. I mean, that's true. They, they're mm-hmm. concerned about not knowing everything. And I, I alleviate that the first day. I said, you're all going to teach an introductory course for which you know mostly nothing. Because this is your little niche. You know this much from your research. And here's introductory chemistry or physics or biology. So just get over it. Uh, <laughs> just get over it and, and believe in yourself because you're going to learn it as you go along. You know, we kind of have a maybe a simple idea of what self-efficacy means. And you mentioned the word confidence. Self-efficacy to do what? Yeah, to, to actually get in there and one, face the students. <laughs> I mean, confidence in dealing with people. I mean, I'm convinced that there are many people who just need some social skills of (laughs) dealing with people. I mean, that's not a given when you become a PhD in science that you've had this opportunity and leadership and and empathy. I mean, we see this all around us, um, these interpersonal skills. But confidence in taking on tasks that you may not necessarily have experience with, but confidence that you're taking on the task and the students are going to give you positive feedback to make that task increasingly uh, more challenging for you and for them. So their willingness, as you gain confidence in teaching, you're, you're, you're more willing to take risks without worrying about the failure, as long as you have students in mind. Um, If it's just a personal risk, you still haven't involved the students. So it's the confidence in dealing with students, the confidence in building their confidence in undertaking increasingly complex tasks. So I'm going to keep raising the bar here, and my students aren't going to feel the pain of going up a higher bar because they're just, they're building this confidence. It's a, it's a positive feedback loop. Self-efficacy is a positive feedback loop in a classroom, I think. As the teachers gain confidence, the students gain confidence, and it's just such a win-win situation. It's this whole network of growth. It's got to be a growth mindset. I mean, you just can't continue on in teaching if you don't have a growth mindset. But I wanted to ask you, you know, Especially, I feel like I see in sort of the organizational change conversations in literature that, you know, people talk about, okay, not wanting to reinvent the wheel. 
And I feel like you've probably seen a lot of wheels get reinvented over the years. And so I wondered, I, I wanted to hear what you have to say about like what kinds of things in, in education and professional development and pedagogy have you seen come up over and over and over again? And do you think that that signals a lack of progress or just that those are the most important questions and things to be thinking about? Yeah, that's a good question, Becky. Um, so hands-on has become active learning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we now have a more sophisticated word for it. So yeah. I, I think the crisis right now is active learning. Uh, yeah. the, the, I do active learning. I do active learning. I got it. I got my clickers. I got this. I got this. I mean, I'm, I've watched that from the 60s. I, I mean, I wasn't doing this work in the 60s. I was just, I was in high school, but, but the, the kits and all of that stuff, if we could, so, so Roger Bybee's the person who took the hands on and said, it's got to be minds on. So in mm-hmm. the K-12, there was a time I would say it was, um, uh, you know, early 80s, Susan Lauterslee and people like that in the K-12 and BSCS was very much into getting the minds on thing. Okay. So they mm-hmm. went through that and their, if you look at their curricular material now for BSCS, it's good. It's, it's on target. Kendall Hunt and all of those things are good. We've kind of gone through the same evolution. I think in one of the biggest problems is higher ed doesn't look at K-12 and they yeah. need to look at K-12 because mm-hmm. the difference between a, a 12th grader and a freshman in college is three months in, in, in normal times and how much beer they've drunk in between. So, so you know, that, you know, that's the difference. Uh, yeah. And so we don't look down. We can learn a lot from, from the K-12 literature Absolutely. and from the K-12 people. And so, so now in, in college, then we've picked up the act of learning and, and you've heard this in our meetings every week, like, you better define active learning. So if you're writing your teaching philosophy, you better, if you're going to use that word, you better tell me what it is. The active Mm -hmm. part is there. The learning is not. Mm -hmm. So this is where we're going to take that learning and go right into 3D or multidimensional assessments because we are avoiding the learning like the plague. (laughs) We are just not acknowledging that. And until, until we really tell them what the learning is. And, and this is the biggest struggle. And this is why we're using then multidimensional. Uh, I didn't decide on that, but I, I, I gave way to a bunch of the youngins. So this is Jennifer Doherty and, and uh, Amanda Sorensen and uh, Luana Prevost. We've been, doing, we've been doing workshops for 3D a lot. And I've been mm-hmm. doing them at ESA. We've been doing them at Sabre. Um, I do them wherever I go, building it on, on uh, three-dimensional learning with all my postdocs. And Jennifer felt as though it's less intimidating because well, the truth of the matter, multi can mean two. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, I'm happy if, if we can have two dimensions. Two dimensions fits vision and change because we mm-hmm. didn't go to these cross-cutting concepts. They're embedded in core ideas. And I would argue for the cross-cutting concepts, I can use systems as every cross-cutting concept in biology. You see, so there I have it. So we're satisfied. I'm satisfied with multidimensional. I wasn't sure if if you were using multidimensional because you were hiding the fourth and fifth and sixth dimensions in your pocket or because you thought two was a pretty good practice. Well, in ESA, um, Paul, we have the four-dimensional ecology education. So we have, mm-hmm. we have core ideas. Uh, they call them skills. 
scientific practices, which I just keep telling the ecologists, you've got to call them scientific, cross-cutting concepts and human impact. So the fourth D hmm. in ecology curriculum is human impact. Another interesting thing about you and the people that you work with is you, it's, it's just across all different types of people, instructors, and uh, all different types of institutions too. So from com- community colleges to big research institutions. Yeah. I, I want to put a hypothetical out there. So somebody rich and famous like Halle Berry or George Lucas, both graduates of two-year schools, decide they want to give you $100 million to improve outcomes of community college students. What do you do with that? Oh, spend it. I have, we have, we have, have, I'm there. Uh, I have postdocs in the, uh, the first four postdocs are also in community colleges and they have, one of them has transformed the whole biology department of a very large community college. Um, Hmm. And, and then one of them is in Jackson. Here's where we need the money in community colleges is that now the hiring structure is such that we have adjuncts galore, mm-hmm. the freeway flyers mm-hmm. that have been around forever in California, but they're everywhere now. So you have people who aren't embedded in the institution, which I think is an atrocity. Mm-hmm. So I would spend that money to enable the people who are making contributions, but really haven't had any buy-in because they're just making a salary to survive uh, or whatever they're doing. You know, yeah. they're not part of the, the fabric of the institution. So I would hire them all and make them fabrics of the institution. Then we could work with them. So, so I'd give them all full-time jobs and that's what I'd do. I wasn't expecting such a straightforward answer to that question. It is oh, something yeah. you can I mean, just throw money at in a way. But no, treat them like human beings. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. give, give them real jobs say that there's going to be professional development attached to this. And if you don't want to start taking on that role, then you should perhaps reconsider what Hmm. you're doing. But we just don't need people coming in here delivering the information. These are really important people you're dealing with. So I'd hire them. First, we got to make friends with Halle Berry first. (laughs) But that's, Hmm. that's what I would do. Give them some stability in their life and, and support in their life. Yeah. Um, I want to let you go soon, but we, at the end of these things, we ask some, some more, some more hypotheticals, I guess, sometimes. So we didn't talk is, about 3D. Is... Am I supposed to, we didn't, are we supposed to be talking? <laughs> like, do you need to know about three-dimensional learning? No. Uh, but that's why I call it multi-dimensional. It's fine, but I just don't, the reason I don't do the three necessarily is that if they only get the two and they're really diagnostic, good questions, mm-hmm. I don't want them in their head saying, what's the third dimension? It's not, yeah. I'll give you a cross-cutting yeah. concept. Don't, it's just, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> They're free. They, they, we've we've no, had a few different conversations about cross-cutting concepts. Because then also, by the way, then we can see movement. So without mm-hmm. making the, the cross-cutting concept an absolute must, if you have the four dimensions of a you know, modeling question or a data question or a scientific argument question, I don't really yeah. worry if there's not a cross-cutting concept there. It's yeah. just, it's just not a big deal. Yeah, it's hard to make a good evidence-based argument without uh, using cause and effect, for example. I, I, yeah, it's it's partly how we define it, and partly <laughs> sometimes I think they're too narrow, and sometimes I think they're too broad. But okay, so um, uh, I don't I don't know if I love this analogy that I want to put out because it it implies maybe that we're hoping to fix that something's wrong with people. That's not our goal or our mindset. But let's say that we've developed a shot 
that instantly turns an instructor into a 3DL mastermind. Um, maybe 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 you need a booster too. I don't know, but you are Anthony Fauci, and you need to decide who gets it first in the order that everybody uh, can get it. After that, how do you how do you make that? How do you make those decisions? I think it's pretty evidence from my work. We we did the research. It's it's going to be the graduate students and postdocs. They're number one. Um, they are in the netherworld. They have been the biggest abused an ignored population in all of science, in my opinion. And if we did not have postdoctoral research fellows, the scientific enterprise would cease as we know it. Uh, it would exist, but PIs would be in a very different situation. Um, and so without a question, it's, it's postdocs and graduate students. And I put the postdocs first because that's who I'm committing my time to. Well, you're... Joy and passion. I, I know it doesn't matter what medium we're on, but I'm pretty sure people are going to even hear it on the podcast. We really mm -hmm. appreciate your time, Diane. Oh, thank this was so much fun. Thank you. Thank you guys for inventing this. Good for you. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's, and you didn't invent podcasts, but I think it's a creative, <laughs> wonderful idea. Uh, yeah. And, and is that's because you guys are the ones who are the change agents. I mean, that's it. We're, I'm just there just to, I'm pretty strong, so I can hold you up and protect you <laughs> from, from, the, from the bottom up and the top down. I, I'm there for you guys. That's, that's the most important thing. Thanks a lot, Dan. Take care. Okay. Thanks, see y'all. Good to see you. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.